Welcome to Stu's EV Universe, where you can find anything and everything electric vehicle. So today we have with us uh, Michael Bream from EV West, uh, the CEO of EV West. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, I guess basically the best place to start might be I, I am dying to hear about the history of EV West and uh, you know how it started, how long you've been doing this, and, and a little bit about the early times. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, from humble beginnings, right? We basically started the company. I was doing some amateur car racing with some friends, uh, combustion powered, and having a lot of fun with it. Um, I was really intrigued by finding clever solutions to problems, you know, and uh, it just it just kind of piqued my interest in trying to just constantly build something better. And during that race series, um, you know, early on, I had read an article on Tesla. This was probably in 08, um, started kind of following what they were trying to do and was really attracted to the fact that. Um, Tesla, for me, anyways, was the first company that wanted to do electric that didn't want to put the sole focus on the environment, right? It's kind of like we always say that the, the side effect of our business is a cleaner environment, but it's not the core. Um, for us, it's, it was really, you know, trying to make cars go faster and, and be seen as a performance shop. So, so kind of seeing what Tesla was doing and then experimenting with our own uh, time, money and resources, we built our first race car and, and you know, kind of came on the scene late 09 in 2010. We spent a year building a car for Pikes Peak and then it ended up, um, the little funny story there is we built the car for another series called EV Cup and that series actually went bankrupt before we finished our car. I mean, this is EV in the early 2010s. It just didn't, there wasn't a scene like there is now. And uh, so, you know, being frustrated uh, that we had put time, money, and energy and actually built a car to a specification for a, a series, it didn't exist anymore. And we're like, we need to find something that's solid, that's been around for a long time. And Pikes Peak was right there. They had, uh, you know, a 95-year history of running the event. It's the second oldest event in the United States. And they actually had a class for electric. They had a class for us. So at that point, uh, it was determined, you know, let's let's build a car and run Pikes Peak. Uh, we did that. We ran it in 2012, uh, set a class record. And I think we were just so impressed by uh, the car. You know, the car it was just an incredible drive, and it really convinces you right there. Uh, I mean, you have to be numbed input to not just see, like, this This is the way. Um, you know, electric racing has a future. And that was basically the impetus of the company. How many conversions do you do in a year? And I mean, how how has that, has it, you know, increased every year, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, there's kind of, uh, you know, uh, a business in two acts, if you will. There was kind of everything before 2017, 2018 that was really, you know, to be honest, a struggle. We were going to a lot of events. We were trying to convince people actively that this was viable uh, fun, you know, it was a, it was an alternative, and then kind of the the 
the winds changed in 2018 and we started to get, you know, the wind at our backs instead of a headwind. And, and that really helped, you know, people, uh, a lot of companies were shipping, you know, their second and third generation cars. So they were getting much better. You know, the general public was turning on to them a lot more and it was just easier. We were more accepted. And instead of having to recite like general EV knowledge, we were more getting into the nitty gritty and the details and performance specs and things like that. So the, the demographic in our consumer base, you know, uh, has become more educated and it's a much easier task nowadays. So uh, now, you know, demand, of course, is very high. We have to limit what we what we do. We're, we're limited by our supply side, basically, um, whereas before 2018, 2017, it was always demand side. There just wasn't a big demand there. So we've kind of gone through this shift, and now you know all of our resources are basically focused on uh, supply chain issues and getting product in and keeping that product flowing out to customers that have uh, conversion projects going on. Now, as far as supply chain, where do you get source the batteries? Uh, yeah, so a lot of different places, but you know we are, we, you know we are. We hate to admit it, <laughs> uh, but we are an environmental company, so we're sensitive right. to that. So we, we we recycle most all of the batteries that we bring in. They've still got a very wonderful life left in them. You know, by the time they they end up in a crashed car or some other you know system. Um, so we've done. You know, we've had installers take out ESS systems where we've recycled those packs. Um, you know, cars. Teslas are obviously a really good. Choice because of the quality, um, but just about everywhere. If it's a good battery, we have the facilities here to test it and uh, kind of uh, you know do a qualitative analysis on it and see if we can fit that into a conversion project. Now you also mentioned uh, demographics, which I find is interesting. I mean, I know I follow you all on on Instagram and everything, and I mean it really puts a smile on my face when I see one of those cars. You know, you're you're taking these classic cars and you're giving them a second life. It's hard to not look at something like that and say, "Oh my lord, how cool is that?" You know, it's it's just really something else. Um, and the quality, even through the pictures, is is evident there. Can you tell me a little bit about it? it I mean. You know, we have our electric vehicle group here, Evolve KY, and most folks, especially these days, we got a lot of, you know, folks buying their first EV, and chances are they're Teslas for the most part at this point. But we do have a couple DIY folks, and they they did it before, like, the Leaf came out. So they did it because they didn't have any other option, and I think... If and I have asked one of them, he's like, I would never do this again. Uh, you know, if, if there's a, 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 a you know a, a car out there that I could purchase, that's wonderful. But I mean, we were at a ribbon cutting for one of uh, the chargers that we installed the other day, and the mayor was there, and we had a bunch of EVs out. And uh, David, the guy, he he converted a uh, it was a Porsche 914 to electric, and you know, and it. it I think he would admit it. It wasn't like a pristine, you know, vehicle. And he did it basically just to put, you know, make it electric. And it was parked right next to a Tesla Model S, gorgeous car. Guess whose car was getting more attention? Oh, I you don't know? even have to guess. That's why we do it. We do this for the cars. Yeah. People, yeah. 
Are we saving the environment? Sure, but again, it's a side effect. We're here to save the car, right? We're all, the, the myself, the staff, the engineers and technicians here, we're all a big part of car culture. And being from Southern California, you know, this isn't, uh, we don't take it lightly, right? We're very, right. very interested in saving the cars, being able to, to offer our customers an avenue to continue enjoying their cars without making irreversible changes to it. We're not fabricating, we're not cutting. Um, so we're, we're really... Uh, trying to flex our engineering muscle in a way that helps the customers do these kind of no-cut reversible conversion kits. And that's really the space that we want to be in where, um, yeah, save the car, let the cars get out, enjoy the sunshine, let them be seen, let them be driven, um, but at the same time keep them intact so they still have that integrity and value that's kind of intrinsic in a classic car. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm assuming, and I, I, I think I'm correct, that um, it's not an inexpensive way to go. I, I You know, I... Again, being involved in the car group here, uh, often, I, you know, we get questions about, oh, you know, I, I love this Jeep or I love this whatever. And, you know, my dream is to convert it to electric. And um, I feel like I'm squashing their dream when I say, I believe that's a pretty pricey thing to do. Uh, am, I, am I correct in that? And, and, and the folks you're, you're that are- You're spot on, you, you yeah. really are. But it's important to note that we don't do this for return on investment. You know, right. that's a Prius owner. Hey, how much am right. I gonna spend? How much am I gonna save on gas? A gentleman does not take his Corvette to a performance shop and put a turbo on it to measure return on investment. And that's what we are. We're kind of like a bolt-on performance device. Yeah, we breathe new life into old cars, but at the same point, um, you know, we, we kind of have this goal of doubling or tripling the original horsepower to actually make the car more fun to drive. If you look at any of these cars through their, through the years, like look at a Porsche from the 60s, from the 70s to the 80s, they continually increase power in that, you know, so it's a desirable thing. And if we can take one of the more vintage ones that are desirable as a car, as a chassis, uh, repower that and make it faster than, you know, a Porsche from the 80s, uh, that's, that's success in our book. And that's really what we're uh, focused on. If, if, um, you know, we have this huge demand for switching over to a sustainable transportation economy, and that's really the job of the automakers. And in the same way that, um, you know, automakers, you can go out and buy a factory gas-powered vehicle, you can also go to a gas tuning shop. And that's just a small percentage of the overall customer base, but for the small tuning shop, that's a lot of customers. So you do a lot of business in the aftermarket, shops like Summit Racing and Jags and things like that. And so we fashion ourselves in the same way. We're just kind of a performance shop for people that happen to run their vehicles on electricity rather than gasoline. You know, So that's, that's the space that we want to occupy is heel to the performance guys who are going to be modifying their car with or without us, right? This isn't something that they're doing because we're in the space. There's a certain amount of people out there that they're not happy with what they're given. They want to tinker, they want to modify, they want to try to improve it. And uh, those are really our people, yeah. Yeah, and I would also assume that, um, I mean, if I go into way, way back <laughs> to probably my 13, 14, or 15-year-old self, uh, I mean, my dream car was like the forest green Porsche 912 or 911, you know? So, as you know, how cool would that be to have something like that in electric, you know? And, and there's something about those vehicles from back then, uh, obviously not all the vehicles from back then, but uh, by some manufacturers that, I mean, they're kind of like a work of art. I mean, if you look in a parking lot today, I, I, maybe the word 
bland comes to yeah. mind. <laughs> you know, you see a lot of white cars and you know, and black cars. I think J Jalopnik coined the phrase vanilla, and it's, yeah. it's so true, you know, very monochromatic colors. Um, yeah, everything about it, especially like the CUV space, you know, the compact uh, right. utility vehicles, they all uh, look like they came out of the same factory. Um, right. And of course, you know, a vintage car from the paint colors that were popular back then to just the styling was very unique to each manufacturer. Uh, you didn't even need to see the badge. You could just see the headlight design and know who made the car. And so it really was a, a unique period because if you think about it, we came out of a period where everything looked the same, right? If you look at 50s, uh, 40s and 50s, you know, Chevys, Fords, Pontiacs, stuff like that, there's a lot of similarities and usually it's just a minor tweak, tweak on the grill. So we kind of came out of this era where everything was very similar, went into this wild era, and then we've gone to similar again. So it's it's neat to, to celebrate cars from that era, you know. And, and now and, we have the Cybertruck. Yeah, right. <laughs> kind of... Hey, what comes around goes around. Everything's yeah. full circle, you know. But one, yeah. of, one of the things I tell people, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see one of our conversions on the road a hundred years from now. You know, we're putting these systems in. Uh, an induction motor is literally a ball of copper uh, with a core rotor in there. And unless the copper stops being copper, it's pretty much always going to work. Um, and, and these are going into cars that have very little, if, if none at all, plastic and things like that. You know, the taillights are glass lenses and things. So you have a car that's kind of timeless and it could go right. on for 100, 200 years from now. And I know that's hard to think about, but um, there's really nothing preventing, you know, these classic cars. And, and if you can think about it, you know, for us, we don't really have any driving examples of 100-year-old cars on the road, but it's totally feasible that, say, in 2050, somebody's just ripping around in a 1950 VW Beetle with a Tesla drivetrain in it. That's a very realistic scenario. And, I, you know, it's going to be great for uh, people, especially car enthusiasts at that time, to be able to see 100-year-old cars still on the road, still driving and, and very much capable. Yeah, and what's been interesting for me to see, you know, and just seeing some of the photographs of work, you know, that you've completed is, you know, you'll see some cars that look like they're right out of the showroom, but then you'll see like these buses that look like they've been through hell and back. But that's also <laughs> cool. I mean, they have this kind of patina and it's almost like they're telling a story. They, they've been oh, through they a lot. Story. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole point. And, and, you know, as Volkswagen guy myself and, and the Volkswagen uh, guys will appreciate this. You have to know the story when you buy, you know, if you buy a used Volkswagen, you got to spend time with the previous owner, kind of get that story and, and, and uh, carry that on with, with the vehicle for sure. Um, well, I, personally, you know, just speaking personally, I'm a big fan of original paint, original logos. Um, I think a lot of resources are wasted in painting a car. Um, but at the same time, um, the cars that we get that tend to be restored, uh, those are the types of customers that really want to care for their car and really take care of it. And those are the cars that are going to, you know, I mentioned driving something 100 years from now. Uh, those are the customers that are going to be there doing that, keeping those on the road. So, um, you know, the fun side effect of this is you get all these restorations in cars, you know, you get a customer, okay, now I'm going to invest, you know, $30,000, $40,000 in electrifying my car. They're going to take better care of it after it's been electrified. So in a way, this keeps the cars on the road. And it's a little bit better than, you know, if we touch on the original paint, if you 
talk to the customers and you see the guys that are doing original restorations, uh, the, the unfortunate uh, dark side of that is a lot of times those cars doing a, an all-out restoration will take two or three other cars of the same make and model off the road because they need parts and replace the pan and the chrome and the glass, whatever parts they might need. And then there's less examples of that. And then they've restored it to this level that's museum quality and they don't feel comfortable driving it, maybe getting a stone chip in the paint and things like that. So we're kind of in that in between, but I think we lean towards, you know, we like to build daily drivers, you know, part of the whole, you know, tagline of this business is seeing the classics out there on the road. And if they, you know, have a museum level restoration, the, the owners are less inclined to drive them. And so that's why you'll see us as a company really celebrate and kind of push, and especially customers that bring us cars that are true daily drivers. Those are the ones that we like. I think our my favorite car of the last year was a doctor up in LA, um, and he brought us a convertible, uh, I'm sorry, a ragtop Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, we're constantly getting emails from him sending pictures, showing us the drives. He's taking it, uh, he takes it up Mount Arrowhead, uh, you know, all these places that he normally wouldn't do it with a combustion engine because he didn't have the power or the range or whatever. And now he's doing all those things and that's ideal. And, you know, yeah, his car has a little tear in the upholstery and a couple stone chips in the paint and stuff like that. And that's what really makes it perfect. He's not hesitant to drive it. No, and again, yeah, going back to the the you know convertible Beetles, I remember again growing up, there was a family on our street that had, I think it was like a powder blue bug that you know ragtop, and these people loved their cars. They had it forever, you know, um, and I don't know if there is that kind of love for a vehicle anymore in these days of leasing and. And you know all that, you know. So it's it's kind of a thing of beauty. How how are they? Because you know you mentioned Tesla batteries, and as far as charging is concerned, um, do they all? Is it all level two charging? Are any of these vehicles able to pull up to a supercharger or or something like that and charge up? Well, not a supercharger because that's proprietary. But we do have options for level three charging. With the typical customer, it's not as important because we're our customers typically aren't road tripping. You know, they will build an electric where they have somewhere between 100 on the low side and maybe 180 on the high side miles of range. Um, and that's about the most you want to drive a classic car in a day. You know, uh, you're not, you know, just trying to power through and get there. You know, the typical drive would be down the coastline, you know, go eat, eat some food, some lunch, go on a little uh, windy country road, that type of thing. And typically, you know, 150 plus miles will do that. Uh, and then, of course, the charging infrastructure is everywhere. Um, you know, I don't know of any buildings in our neighborhood that don't have electricity. And it's kind of lost that you don't have to supercharge. You don't have to plug into that high-speed charger every time. Uh, I drive a 1965 pickup truck. is kind of my daily driver electric conversion. And I charge on a little 110-volt outlet, you know, just 15 amps, uh, your standard outlet at home. Right. Um, because I don't drive that far. And while I'm sleeping in that eight hours time, that's plenty of time, even at a slower rate, to completely charge my vehicle. So it's kind of neat. I wake up in the morning and I have some morning tasks, run the kid to school, take care of some stuff and show up at work. And I never have to worry about trying to slip in, stopping by the gas station into that morning routine because I basically basically wake up to a full range every day. And our customers are kind of, you know, echo that same sentiment. Now, can you give us a, an idea, I guess a couple questions of, 
the the range that someone can expect to pay for a conversion. Um, I assume that they have to have the car first and maybe there are requirements for the car. So that's one of the things. The other thing is, um, I mean, do you sell kits? I mean, are, are some people more interested in doing it themselves uh, and kind of going that route? And is that encouraged? Yeah, absolutely. And that whole thing is in flux. It's important to note. One of the things that we really are focusing on is taking care of the shops that are going to be kind of pushed by the wayside because of the switch to electricity. You know, in California here, uh, we've got about 12 and a half years left before it's going to be regulated and the OEMs, the factory automakers can't sell combustion vehicles in the state anymore. And that's going to have a ripple effect on um, shops such as muffler shops, radiator shops, smog inspection shops. Uh, so a lot of those guys are looking to pivot into something that's gonna keep them in business. So because our demand is so great right now, a lot of other shops, we're working with those shops, uh, helping them to become you know, proficient in converting cars. And then they have that kind of income stream. They have basically a, a line of work that they can do that's somewhat future-proof. You know, I think uh, electric drive is gonna be around for a really long time. I don't know what's next or what's gonna replace it. Um, but, you know, for the time being, this gives them a very uh, clear avenue to that. Have there been kind of certain challenges that you've had to deal with through the years uh, with this or? Uh, you know, there's the small business challenges that everyone has. You know, you're, you know, in the beginning, we were constantly um, trying to create demand. Uh, now we have demand and now we are chasing supply. So um, I think those are standard for any small business owner. But I, uh, you know, if I could just take a moment to just say how much fun we're having. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I literally, sometimes it's like pinch me. I get to go to work, I get to uh, play with electricity, I get to play with cars, solve complex problems, talk to amazing car owners all over the world and just really share our love of, uh, you know, a uh, very technical term, but just tinkering, you know, just right. playing with cars. A lot of a lot of this stuff takes some tinkering to figure out. You know, there's not a lot of paperwork out there. There's not a lot of, you know, um, documentation on what we're doing. So we're trying to kind of create it as we go along, buying new cars wrecked from auctions, taking them apart, seeing what we can repurpose out of those systems, always looking for the next battery the next motor and pulling it out of stuff so it's um you know if you go behind our shop here you're going to see a ton of cars you know taken apart teslas bmws you know just about every ev from the factory automakers uh just trying to see how they're all doing it and see if we can take some of that technology and make it available to our customers now i guess could you give me just so i can get an idea maybe like your top three conversions as far as um what you enjoy, and then maybe top three unique conversions, like the, the maybe perhaps the oddest th ones right. that you've well, done. Well, first of all, they're all wonderful, right? It's like okay. asking a parent what their favorite child is. So right. I'm a little <laughs> okay. taken back by that. But, okay. uh, you know, the ones are, that get driven, right? Um, we're not here to, to put a car on stage and shine lights at it and, you know, say things about it we're doing this because we want functionality back in the car, right? It's very important to note like why we are here and we're here to make cars more drivable. We're here to make them faster. We're here to make them reliable. And of course, we're here to make them clean and sustainable, right? Uh, if you want a future with a car, that car 
has to be sustainable and what goes in it and what comes out of it that has to be sustainable. Otherwise, I'm robbing my kid or my kid's kids from that same enjoyment factor of being able to drive cars without thinking about all the guilt and everything. So uh, those are the reasons. And most all of our conversions fit that, you know, every now and then we'll do something for a TV show um, that maybe doesn't go to an owner. Those are you know, slightly less favorable maybe, but they're all so favorable, right? It's important right. to know everything is good and we're just really stoked to convert it. So, um, but I think it, you know, to pinpoint it on, you know, what you said to your question, what's the favorite? It would have to be the ones that are drivable. It would have to be the ones that more take advantage of electric drive. So of course, race applications that need sudden acceleration, off-road applications that need a very high amount of torque, rock crawling, things like that. And, uh, and we're still figuring it out. You know, this last year we just built, uh, well, last year we built a Bonneville car and took it out to Bonneville and got a record on the salt. And so that was new for us and, and then got some other teams involved in racing out there. Uh, so you see it, you see that inspiration, other people going out doing the same thing. Those people are going to inspire yet more people and it's going to kind of continue that chain reaction. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm so sorry, Stuart, I can't tell you which one is better than the other. I, Cause they're just all so good, you know? Uh, and I get this question a lot and I struggle with it every time. I, I wish I had what, a better answer. What kind of cars do you see frequently in, in the shop? You know, uh, vintage cars, mid seventies, mostly the imports do well, but mainly because of, um, their architecture being rear engine and independent suspension. Um, the independent suspension works really well with the uh, integrated drive units that have a built-in differential into the motor. Then you just have half shafts going out to the CVs. So that's very tough to retrofit into uh, most American cars with a solid rear axle, right? So, uh, yeah, and a lot of this is, you know, I think the, the phrase is going after the low-hanging fruit. Uh, slightly derogatory from that standpoint. We're really going after, we're trying to convert the cars that you can do it without disrupting the car. You know, trying to disrupt it the least is the goal. And so, of course, those cars, a lot of the import cars, the air-cooled, the Porsches and Volkswagens, uh, they just fit into that category. I don't think for Dr. Ferdinand Porsche way back then said, I'm going to design this car to be super compatible with a Tesla drive. Uh, but somewhere along the way, that's what happened. And now we've got this uh, great compatibility with a lot of the German cars. Now, I'm assuming folks that are doing this with you, you know, that are bringing cars in are super excited. Do they end up uh, having, you know, meetups later or has anything like that happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's Electric Car Club here in San Diego um, and there's a lot of, you know, cars and coffee. There's a secret car club meeting. There's a lot of little car clubs in the various communities. Um, and, you know, all during the summer, there's all sorts of uh, evening car uh, kind of organized meetups and rides and stuff like that. So any given day you go down to the beach and you'll see cars kind of cruising around. And in particular, the EV guys will will meet up and do little things. We have uh, open houses here and we have kind of organized things that we do through the shop um, to get owners together too. We just uh, this last summer had an open house for a STEM school that we're a part of called the Electric Vehicle Learning Center. And you can you know, learn more about them at ev-lc.org. But basically, we're trying to carry this knowledge on to the younger generation. When I was younger and I'd be mowing the lawn, 
the mo- the mower would act up. My dad's like, you know, did you check the gap on the spark plug? Did you check the fuel filter? And now in that same situation, we have these fathers that come to us and their kids on an electric little scooter, razor, electric bike. Right. And hey, dad, it's not charging. And they just don't know what do I do? What's the next step? And so um, uh, we had some some uh, gentlemen around our business here and some customers come together and start a nonprofit to kind of help bridge that gap so the kids and the the parents can kind of learn some of these diagnostic skills and just learn about electric vehicles um, in, a, in a nice, safe atmosphere um, and just really pass on the, the joy of learning about, you know, something new and a new drive system. Yeah, no, that's great. And actually, um, you know, because we've been in touch with our uh, community and technical college folks here and, um, you know, the automotive program, that's something that's very real now. Things are switching over to electric. So, um, you know, we're fortunate that locally we have folks that are genuinely interested in this and, you know, getting that kind of education for their students. So that's super exciting. And that's, you know, yeah, it's giving back to the society. That's wonderful. Um, for a project like this, is, is there a certain... Uh, how long is it, like from start to finish, typically? Is there, you know, is there a typical? Well, uh, no, there's a huge, huge range. You know, on the low side, two days, and I think there's probably a car or two back there that's been with us for, you know, going on three years now. Um, a lot of it has to do with are we creating the engineering or are we using pre-existing engineering that we did on a previous car years back? Um, that has a lot to do with it. And, of course, the customer timeline. So, you know, uh, way back in the day, we did a car in two days for Discovery Channel. I would never do that again. I don't recommend doing that, Um, you know, but now we're less focused on the customer with the car as we are coming up with the engineering, right? Right now we're trying to uh, put, invest a lot of time and resources into the engineering so that it's best reused in other examples, right? So um, we'll spend a lot of time, we'll bring a car in and maybe have it here for a full year, do full CAD CAM scans and drawings, come up with all the fitment parts and the battery enclosures and et cetera. Um, And then the next guy can maybe do that car in a month because of all that engineering was done. And then uh, we'll try to maybe stay away from that particular make and model for a little while because we just did all the engineering on it and then look forward to the next car. You know, okay, maybe now it's time to do the Triumph or the MG, whatever it might be, and complete that kit. Once we finish our engineering, you know, it's timeless, right? The, 9, the 1970 911 is never going to change. It's the same car as it is today, is 20 years or 40 years from now. So it's important to really uh, spend a lot of time and energy on that engineering and really do a top-notch job because it's going to be around for a really long time. And that's, that's kind of the model that we're following right now. Now, what about safety? Because obviously, modern-day cars have crumple zones. They, oh, yeah. You know, if you drive a vintage car, you don't care about safety. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be so dismissive. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, we can't change the time and the period and the standards that the car was built. But I think arguably um, our customers find the drivability of the car makes them safer. The reliability of the car makes them safer. The lack of noxious carbon monoxide makes them safer. I could keep going. But I think that, um, you know, if you compare a vintage car to a new car, it's no contest. The new car is is arguably so much safer, right? Um, But if you take... uh, 
1970 Beetle that's been electrified and compare it to a gas-powered 1970 Beetle, I think most would agree that the electrification has improved safety. Right. Okay. And is there any um, considerations as far as getting these things once they're completed, like registered and have, have there been any issues with anything like that? You know, not in the United States. In other countries, there's some um, stricter requirements, some that the replacement engine can't have more power than the original. There's things like that. And electronically, we can kind of meet some of those restrictions. Um, but, you know, there's so many countries, you know, over a couple hundred countries in the world and everybody has different regulations. And then there's countries like the U.S. that has 50 states within the country and we have different regulations within those states. So it's a tangled web. Um, but for the most part, yeah, the, the EVs are very well accepted. I know in California, you know, one of the largest car markets in the world, um, our only concern is dirty air, right? So, um, in fact, we're kind of the home of hot rotting. If you can make it carb compliant, California Air Resource Board compliant, uh, you can put a lot of power into a car. And there's a huge industry out here based on just that, making um, performance parts, headers, exhaust, induction systems, things like that, that are carb uh, smog compliant out here. So I think along those lines, there's really no uh, hiccups or roadblocks to getting a car registered other than proving to the state, hey, uh, I took my car that formerly had a lot of smog and cleaned it up. Yeah. Right. Okay, great. Was there anything that I didn't touch on that, that you'd like to talk about or? Um, no, you had some really good questions. We, we talked about a pretty good variety of stuff. You know, we're at such an exciting time. Right. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows where this is going to go, but we're optimistic about it going. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's very curious. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of different fuel types. You have batteries, you have hydrogen. We have a lot of the stuff. It's all focused around an electric drive system and an electric motor. So, you know, if you follow the history of the combustion engine, and kind of transpose that history onto electrics, we can see that we're going to have a very, um, you know, powerful, very fun future. There's going to be a lot of innovations coming down the line. Things that we haven't even thought of yet um, are going to be innovated and applied to the electric drive systems. And it's going to be just an absolute pleasure to be involved in that industry uh, as it grows and progresses. Yeah, that's great. Did you want to point to uh, any of your uh, like website or social media, all that kind of uh, stuff? Yeah, you can, you know, if you have any questions about electric cars, you can generally find me in the support department at evwest.com. I love talking to customers and, um, you know, sometimes just a 10-minute conversation can put them on the right track for their project and save them, you know, months of time going down the wrong road or researching something that might not work. Um, but uh, we just encourage everyone to just be really excited about electric vehicles and do everything you can to promote them and learn more about them because uh, in the blink of an eye, we're, it's going to be the majority. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, again, thrilled to talk to you because uh, you're doing some great work. And uh, again, it always brings a smile to my face when I, when I see those vehicles. So um, thanks for spending some time with me today. Really uh, my appreciate pleasure. it. pleasure. Thank you for having me very much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Stu's EV Universe. I would like to thank Eden Unger for creating the artwork and the music for this episode. Remember, please rate, review, subscribe, and share, as that's the only way we can continue to grow. Now you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash EVU. Remember, the EV revolution runs on your energy. I'm Stuart Unger. See you next time.